0: This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Meneese. On today's show, we visit an exhibition celebrating Japanese woodworking, drop in to see the Welcome Collection's latest offering, and check out Quadrat's newest release at the world's biggest office furniture fair, Orgatech. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. We start our show in London, where a current exhibition at Japan House showcases over a thousand years of woodworking mastery. The Carpenters' Line, Woodworking Heritage in Hida Takayama, explores the craft, culture and techniques found in the Gifu Prefecture of Japan. Monocle's Tamsin Howard went along and sent us this report.
1: A carpenter's line is a tool, the fundamental tool for a carpenter, which... Sets out a precise, straight, fundamental line from which you can work, and it is used using an inked string.
2: This is Simon Wright, director of programming at Japan House.
1: The Carpenter's line also refers to the lineage of woodworking craftsmanship in Hidatakayama, and we tried to play on those words as well.
2: Japan House collaborated with the Japanese design group SPREAD, Kobayashan and Yamada-san, who installed curtains to help the visitors through the exhibition space.
1: These curtains are reflections of the forest of Hida. They are in folds. There is a play on words in the idea that, in Japanese, the word for a fold is Hida, and that is also the name of the area, of course. And there is a theory that maybe the name Hida came from the idea that there are the folds of the mountains.
2: This is the sound of the densely forested Hida province, the northern portion of Gifu Prefecture in the centre of Japan. The mountainous region has roughly 52 kilohectares of natural forest, with 40% of the forest made up of conifers like cypress and cryptomeria. The other 60% comprises of 350 types of broadleaf tree, which includes beech, oak, walnut, cherry and Japanese broadleaf magnolia. These are notoriously difficult to work with, and the forests are in decline. But the Hida region is the only region where broadleaf wood furniture is successfully produced. It is one of the most recognised places in Japan for woodworking and the exhibition transports you to this environment. There is an aroma of wood and the sounds of the forest can be heard as you walk through the exhibition space.
1: When you look at Hida Takayama, you're looking at 1,300 years of history and something very strongly embedded within the Japanese psyche about woodworking.
2: Early records show woodworkers once provided their skills to the imperial capital in place of taxation, as well as famous shrines and temples. Simon introduces me to one of the first items in the exhibition, which brings this rich history to life.
1: It is a fantasy, science fiction Story of the tale of a Hida craftsman. And this fantasy book obviously refers to the fact that Hida craftspeople were well-known for their woodworking skills.
2: It is an original print illustrating Hida no Takumi Monogatari, a story published in 1808. Simon highlights the importance of the hidden autonomy that the craftspeople of Hida have, and how much it is embodied in the cultural landscape of Japan.
1: The example we have is an original print and the page open that we have chosen is showing the main character of the story who is called Inabe no Suminawa and Suminawa means craftsman's line. The actual hero of the story is the carpenter's line and the print is actually made by Katsushika Hokusai.
2: Today, internationally renowned workshops in the area collaborate with designers all over the world This next item tells us more about the influence of Japanese woodwork globally and the future of woodwork in the region.
1: This chair is by Hida a company in Takayama, uh, one of the big four, in fact, of important uh, furniture manufacturers. And Cryptomeria wood is great for construction of buildings, but it's not great for the making of furniture. And what Hidasangyo has done has created a technique whereby you compress this soft wood into something which is suitable for making furniture. And I think the combination of, say, designers like Kawakami and this technique of compression of cryptomeria wood to make a suitable material is an example of what lies in the future maybe for Hida Takayama, this constant uh, regeneration, rethinking, innovation, making use of what is available but expanding one's horizons.
2: The livelihoods of Hida's inhabitants still depends on their woodworking skills. Hundreds of joinery techniques, lattice work, and lacquerware, which have been passed down through generations. The exhibition does explore the history of Hida, but it also questions ideas of tradition, questions what innovation looks like, and focuses on the present and future of the woodworking industry in the region.
1: We have uh, pieces which have been made in this year, 2022, and innovations which have happened uh, over the Covid pandemic. We've also centred on a very important part of Takayama's woodworking history which is really the mid 20th century and we have tried to show it in its reality it is it is a very real industry in Takayama furniture making and it's not that glamorous necessarily and it's definitely not something that may strike you as being Japanese but this is the reality and this is what we really wanted to show the reality of what woodworking is in Hida Takayama looking at the raw materials, it looks at the environment, the place. We then move on to the tools and how people interact with that environment.
2: This song is sung by the people of Hida after they finished a meal and before the party begins. They sing to the good health of the forest, that they rely on for their work.
3: Joy, joy, to the noble young pine, may its branches flourish, may its needles grow thick, the needles grow thick on the noble young pine. An end, an end, though there be many a way to end the night, let us end here. Good night, good night.
2: Yamada has a company in Japan called Misalt. He is an independent buyer and curator, and he is in charge of the creative direction of the exhibition. His trip to Hida and the process of learning items tells us more about the exchange that took place.
4: I've discussed with Simon on what items and products to display, on what path the visitors should take in order to learn about the process. What I tend to do um, in the buying process is like So you go to various manufacturers or craftspeople And talk to them, look at the products products as well What I'm looking for really, products themselves need to be interesting Uh, as well obviously uh, But sometimes uh, the process of how they were made uh, And also the process of how they came about uh, Could be visible uh, just by looking at the products as well And that's really interesting when that happens. In other words, you could say that the products themselves are very uh, very communicative. You can tell a lot.
1: We also look to the future of what it means for woodworking in Hida Takayama, for example, with The Apprentice School. Uh, where young people can learn the woodworking techniques, but we also look at ideas of sustainability, how the environment needs to be maintained, in in order to sustain the industry with, within uh, Hida Takayama, and how various designers companies are looking at ways to enhance their sustainability so
4: like and i just
5: want people
4: who come over to this exhibition to really enjoy and experience that background what's behind it and if that would encourage those people to go and visit the region as well
0: that would be wonderful
2: for monocle in london i'm tamzin howard
0: The Carpenters' Line, Woodworking Heritage in Takayama is on at Japan House, London, until the 29th of January 2023. Now for another entry from our Design Favourites series. It's where, as the name suggests, we ask a designer to share an example of what they perceive as good design. For this week's edition, we venture to Istanbul to hear from Kerem Arish, a designer and maker, and the founder of Turkish brand, Unica. Over to you, Kerem.
5: Most of the time it can be in the shadows of the Eames chair, but I don't know how, somehow it uh, fascinates me. It's a classic actually, but it's my favorite classic and also one of my favorite designs. I wanted to talk about a classic piece, which still inspires me a lot. The Barcelona chair was designed by a German architect and designer Ludwig Mies van der Rohe in 29. It was designed for the German pavilion in the exposition in Barcelona. It is made of stainless steel and upholstered leather. Starting with 50s, the U.S. American company Knoll produces it. They had some slight revisions in the design, in the making. They perfected the metal structure and also some touches on the upholstery. But the piece at that time was still looking very nice and now it's even better. The materials are mainly the steel frame. Or the chrome frame and then on top there are the upholstered uh, leather seat and the backrest it shows a a very good leather upholstery technique it's the perfection in my belief 40 square pieces of leather are connected in the seat and the backrest it's just perfect Uh, and as far as I know all the the leather parts and the metal parts are still all handmade. In our label, in our design brand, Unica, we are also producing each product with handcrafts. They are all handmade. So that also inspires me a lot. I don't know the sales of the Barcelona chair, but I think some hundreds or thousands a year are sold. And it's a huge volume and still all of the pieces are uh, handmade including the metal parts instead of all the available technology they got. The piece is so simple, it's just a very simple geometry, two rectangular pieces and an X. The X, as far as I know, the designer Van der Ruhe inspired by the folding chairs. But what I see in that X is also, it looks as if it is a letter X in a serif font, you know, a dancing X. So it's just an X and two rectangular forms. It's so simple, but it has a very big character when you see it in an environment sitting there. Whenever I see an image of an interior with the Barcelona chair, it has a really high inspiration on me and it drives me to work. And wherever I see that chair, I always, Think of Unica products sitting together in the same home or office or whatever the environment is and they are used together with that chair. So that timeless and modern feeling is attracts me a lot in that product and also inspires me always.
0: Karem Arish there on why he loves the Barcelona chair. A new exhibition at London's Welcome Collection delves into the different ways that we see and are seen. The show, called In Plain Sight, explores the role that eyewear can play as both corrective medical aid and an opportunity for demonstrating design innovation and personal style. The photographer, Nina Manandar, is one artist featured in the exhibition lineup, with a new commission documenting people's lives through glasses. She joined Maylee Evans at Midori House to tell us more. What We Wore was
6: a project that I started, God, maybe about 10 years ago now. I started building the archive and the whole idea behind it was a kind of people's narrative on style. So as opposed to kind of the work of professional photographers, seeing style through people's own photos and how that told a different story. A theme that runs through my work, both in the work that I do with archives and photography is people's stories and people's perspectives questions about the meaning of style and how style can be an entry point into people's lives and worlds and cultures. For In Plain Sight I have done a project called People's Eyewear. So looking at the role of eyewear, sunglasses,
4: glasses in youth style. And you've had an open call asking the public to submit images from their youth, documenting what on earth was going on when it comes to trends, but also just, as you say, it shows a different side to style. It's not just those polished images we see in magazines. It's people living, going about their days. So what are some of the images maybe that have been coming in? What are some of your favourites that you've come across? So it was a mixture of like people submitting images. Also,
6: we sort of did a bit of research, so we reached out to people that we thought would be interesting, people that are, like, are known for wearing glasses, I like having the mix of kind of known people who are considered to be part of like British cultural history and style and just everyday people, I guess. We've got a submission from Jarvis Cocker in his his kind of classic um, black frames, uh, just an old school photo booth picture. How did you
4: find people used style? What kind of image of themselves did they want to present?
6: One of the most interesting things was that a lot of people didn't have images of themselves in glasses. It was actually one of the most challenging What We wore projects I've done because it was particularly focused on youth. What I did discover was that people often went for a period, their teenagers years and their early 20s, where they didn't wear glasses. So it was really hard to get images because people often wore contacts in that period of their life or they didn't necessarily want to put a picture of themselves with glasses in the exhibition because they felt like, I don't know, they didn't feel that was their coolest moment you know which is interesting because i think the perception of glasses wearing has really shifted over the past sort of 50 years and i think perhaps it was maybe older people that were were more self-conscious about wearing glasses one thing i did this time was work with audio so rather than it just be images as a series of five stories which focus on a sort of lifetime in glasses we've got contributions submit images over time There's one series from Ted Polymus, the anthropologist, and he talks about the different phases he's been through wearing glasses. He was actually born in America and he started off wearing these kind of like, I guess like the American equivalent of NHS glasses. And he talks about when he came over to the UK, he got really obsessed with NHS glasses, was really into the classicness of those throughout his adult life. But almost maybe that was because he was American. You know, they weren't something that he necessarily wore as a child. And he gives sort of lots of anecdotes about um, how glasses are attached to phases in your life. I don't know, I'm not a glasses wearer myself, but there's objects throughout my life which I've kind of, I associate with phases of my life and rituals and times in my life that I, you know, that are really meaningful to me. This is even more so with the glasses because people... um, yeah, they associate glasses with a particular time of their life and the memories, and talking about a pair of glasses brings out all those stories. It's almost like having a bit of a time machine. There was a really nice submission um, from a woman called Cynthia Granfield who submitted an image of her in her late teens, early 20s, at the case to soul weekender in a pair of glasses. And she should talk about how she grew up hating wearing glasses, but then she kind of grew into wearing glasses. And she talks about spending her student term grant on glasses from Cutler and Gross and like looking longingly at the windows of Opera in Covent Garden. You know, because I guess it's like a big purchase, isn't it? A pair of glasses. And you know
4: you're going to wear them for a few years, so you've got to choose wisely. I guess across your wider practice, you've returned to youth culture, youth style again and again. What is it about this period of time? that you find so exciting and and intriguing that you want to continue and kind of keep delving into in in various contexts? I think what it is about youth
6: culture is that it's that time when people are very experimental with their identities, Um, really interested in style as a um, way of expressing belonging and community and the kind of idea of expressing your individuality but also belonging to a tribe or how you belong through expressing your style, I think that's just really in youth culture. It's, it's most apparent. What I found is most people grow into their glasses with age, and as they grew, a sense of inner confidence, and that was something which kind of repeated um, with a lot of the contributors. So we conducted these kind of oral history interviews, and pretty much everyone sort of said said the same thing. So it's interesting to see how yeah, your sense of self. Was connected to your identity as a glasses wearer? There's a nice story from uh, a designer called Pat Duffy, and he talks about like being a working-class kid in NHS specs, growing up in Stockton-on-Tees, and the stigma attached to wearing glasses in the 1980s, and just that kind of being able to share openly from an image and the image being a starting point to talk about those kind of wider cultural issues and how now he feels. So a lot of people also said, oh, sometimes when I'm older I don't wear glasses, I wear contacts, but it's when I have my glasses on that I feel more like me. So much of the rest of the exhibition is about the history of glasses, this particular lens from this particular year. So this really is a sort of a very much a kind of open people's response to, to the emotional and psychological side of how wearing glasses makes people feel. And that's the same with the the style. It's about it is about like, you know, belonging and community, but how style and items of clothing can be transformative in how you feel about yourself. Style is very much about wanting to be part of something and it's not necessarily about the item itself, but it's about how that item kind of builds its kind of sense of why people want to buy into it, why people want to wear it, why people want to be part of something. It's a psychological thing, you know? It's not really about the object. And that, for me, is what fashion communication is. It's about that kind of understanding of this jumper that I'm wearing. Like, why am I wearing it? What does it mean to me? Who, who do I associate it with? It's the same with, with the glasses.
0: That was the artist, Nina Manandar, there, in conversation with Maylee Evans. The exhibition, In Plain Sight, is on at London's Welcome Collection until the 2nd of February, 2023. Augatec, the world's biggest trade fair devoted to office furniture, kicks off today in Cologne. The event sees the city's exhibition centre and furniture showrooms packed with design enthusiasts, keen to learn about the future of workplace furniture and speak to those behind it. In that number this year is Giulio Rodolfo, an Italian colour advisor who has worked with Danish firm Cadrat on two new textiles which will be launched at Orgatech. I caught up with Giulio in Cologne to find out more about his work and the collaboration.
3: Oh, well, at this stage, at 60, I I have a a proper personality. What to say What do I am? I am consulting fields of uh, furniture. They say a master of colors, but actually, precisely, I do different things in this field. So uh, as designer, I can work with companies to to smooth the process of the making of an object. Or I can be a colorist. Or I, I can I can work in different things on the backstage of the, of furniture design. That's actually what, what I'm working on these these years. And and then tell me I mean
0: you, you mentioned colors there and being a colorist, being a color advisor, is that the role that you're working in with Quadrat here? Tell us about that relationship.
3: Well, what's happening now with Quadrat is a, it's, it's like to, to to close a circle of activities that we are doing since 20 years. So we have been working with Quadrat on. Um, uh, I would say from the origin of um, some textiles that were very important for them too. The thing is that uh, what happened with Quadrat especially was that I had the capability to work with masters of weaving, so I put my my knowledge and my uh, expertise about subtile, subtiling the way of how colour can, can affect a material, a textile. You know in fashion I was used to work for many many years in designing and I was able to select him between a hundred of blacks for the same collection. So uh, there's a kind of expertise, like like um, training about color. So that's why Quadrat has got this way to call me the master of colors because when I work with them, it's a quite it's a quite a big big theme to to absorb and to readapt about structures and textiles.
0: I mean, how does how does the way you work with color change, uh, you know, depending on the medium you're working in? Yeah. So you're working in textiles here. Do you have to think about how we're using color differently when when you're when you're working on those projects?
3: Every color, every texture absorbs the color differently. That's why working with textiles it takes a lot of care about the it. textile. It's only one element, one media that creates the furniture. It creates a, a landscape and environment. So textile is a part of the project architecture. It's like when you think about the color of a building, of a, of a new structure, of a of the color of a car—every color reacts differently to the, the materiality of the story. So, with textiles, it's quite a long um, expertise. I feel safe with the textile because I was formed in textile. I use them. It's my media. Textiles, being a tailor, advising for companies of furniture, textiles—one of the media—is that like the first layer when you see. When you see. A new furniture piece, a sofa or a chair. You see, it's a beautiful color, but you touch the color. This is the the sense of uh, working with textiles. There's there's a sensuality in color always. I like I like that
0: that idea of being able to touch the th- the color. Is yeah. that, is that something you're thinking of?
3: Yeah, always. There is something that is very. Um, it's like uh, there is always a different role in every. Uh, attitude of every material for example working with wools with polyesters or whatever with quadrat they form a special character on what is going they match with a 3d shape of an object so i'm thinking always before what could be a sensation of a color when i create a color range for example for a new material
0: i mean how do you want you know we're we're looking at the the new colors with the with the steel cut how do you want people to feel when they see this new range that you've worked on with Kudrat.
3: I wonder that they, they, they look at them as a landscape not forced for one color. There's no color that wins to another but it's the blend of is the blend like when you see a, a a piece of art or something like that not I don't, I don't want to be so pretentious to compare about it but I always look at it like a panorama, It's always look to find a thing that is not too, too much yellow, too much red, but at the end it's a kind of harmony inside, that's what I wanted to transfer as a concept to a colour collection.
0: And then tell me about the, the process of actually making the steel cut. Firstly, where the name came from, but then also, you know, you mentioned this is this is the conclusion of a project that dates back 20 years. What have you learned in that 20 years?
3: Yeah, no, in 20 years I learned that there's a lot of things you can work with colour in different ways. You can work with yarn colours, you can work with painting and textile, you can work about uh, let's say to, you you can integrate concepts, you in know, you can tell a, a story. In, in, even in a textile, uh, with the age, with training a lot in colors, I think there is something very special when working with the three-dimensional textiles. There is a lot to do also with um, the beauty from far from a textile. How you want, as I said before, uh, you you see a color in a textile, you say we uh, want to touch it. It's not only a color; you only to have a view, like a standing, like like a shell, like a statue, like this. And it's something that has to uh, to be to live with us, so I think it's something that we can consider nearby us, but we have to let them live also in a space, in a, in a landscape, in a in an environment.
0: Just finally, I guess for our, for our listeners, and I mentioned the name Steel Cut then, so perhaps you could tell us about that. Can you describe Steel Cut 3 for our, for our listeners and what it actually is?
3: Mm. Steel Cut 3 is a is a clever intuition from a, from a cl- great designer who works suddenly Working on a small construction or textile, mo- making big movement, giving a three-dimensionality to a textile that could be normally warp and weft it gave a kind of a structure as a rice seed, like a small structure, like a small pyramid just to describe things that could let's say interplay like in a construction, like in a minimal construction, like in a creating an atmosphere of a sound of a textile. Uh, To me, Stilcatrio is a um, master of creation of a diagonal grain that is very tactile. So when thinking about colours on it, it was easy to interplay with three colours and create a kind of harmony. It's like painting by by layers. It's something that gives an extra joy to an extra movement to a a flat painted land. It's the opposite of a, a flat pantone.
0: My thanks to Giulio Rodolfo there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle On Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Nick Menice, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.